You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Amanda. Hey, I'm Chelsea. Hi, I'm Grace. And I'm Sarah. This is the Keystone Cold Case podcast. And for our first episode, we're just going to start off with some introductions about ourselves. And then we're going to hop into our case. I'll start out. I am Sarah. Obviously, I'm from Pennsylvania. Right now, I am a teacher. And soon, I'm looking to get out of education and go into linguistics, which is just language because I'm a nerd. Um, I got my undergrad degree at E-Town College in Education, but I just finished my master's in linguistics. Um, At the end of my master's degree, I did my final capstone project on forensic linguistics, which is the way that law and language overlap. So it's things like investigating ransom notes and coded notes or uh, spoken messages. So think of things like Jack the Ripper and the Zodiac, that kind of stuff. That's all forensic linguistics. Otherwise, pretty much only other thing I do in my life is hang out with my husband when he's not on the road for work or hang out with some of our animals. And I really got into true crime one day when I was working as a bank teller and we only had access to our bank program and Wikipedia. So I decided to search up my birthday and see what happened in history on my birthday and the John Benet Ramsey case came up. Um, I was born December 26th and that's the morning she was found. So that's pretty much the first case that I ever really saw. And then I just kind of kept rolling with it and here we are. All right, well, I'm Grace. I'm located in the southeast quarter of Pennsylvania. I have a background in fashion and retail. I have my fashion merchandising degree from Albright College. And I can't really pinpoint an exact case that got me into true crime, but I did grow up with my mom constantly watching things like 2020 and forensic files. So eventually it just kind of grew on me. I'm Chelsea. I live in the burbs of Philly. I am a graduate engineer. I graduated from Temple University with a mechanical engineering degree. Uh, In my spare time, I hang out with my very energetic nine-year-old son. I have a zoo of animals at my house, and we have a huge garden that keeps us definitely preoccupied with any spare time we have. I'm Amanda. I live in central PA with my husband and our eight-year-old son. I graduated from college with a degree in automotive, and I own my own automotive business for the past 14 years. I'm also a certified EMT and nationally certified in Firefighter One. My love for true crime came when a girl went missing in my hometown and I've kind of been obsessed ever since. So that's just a little bit about us. You'll get to know more about us as the episodes go on, but we're really glad to have you with us and listening. And we're gonna start out today with the case of Cindy Song. And this is one that's been covered by Unsolved Mysteries. It's been covered by multiple podcasts, multiple TV shows, but it's one that resonated with me specifically because it happened at Penn State. Um, My mom went to Penn State and my husband and I are both really big fans of Penn State football. 
So as soon as I started looking at some PA cases and saw Penn State, I just felt kind of attracted to this one, as weird as that is to say about uh, crime. But we're going to go ahead and get started. We're going to chat a little bit about Cindy's song. So Cindy, like I said, she was a senior student at Penn State University when she disappeared overnight between Halloween and November 1st, 2001. So this fall will be at 20 years out from this case. And really, there's still not a whole lot that we know. Basically, what we do know is that she went out for Halloween with some friends. They went to another friend's apartment to play video games for a while. And then around 4 a.m., Cindy was dropped back off at her apartment and hasn't been seen since. So Cindy was born Hyung Jung Song in Seoul, South Korea in 1980. She would be 41 this year. She grew up and spent most of her childhood in South Korea, but she moved to Virginia with her aunt and uncle so that she could attend high school in the United States once she was 15. When she was in high school, she applied to and got accepted to Penn State University because it's the best college out there, even though that's not where I went, still my favorite, and attended the college with a major in integrative arts. So what I could find about this major is basically that it's a student-created professor monitor major, um, and it's really rigorous. Medium.com described it as a major that combined engineering, communications, and science. Little bit of a personal note here, I think I would go completely insane if I tried just one of those. I mean, my master's is in linguistics, so language and communications I could probably handle, but if you tried to throw engineering and science on top of that, I would go nuts. Uh, this girl definitely had some major dedication. Now on top of all of this, she also worked two part-time jobs. She knew what she wanted and she was willing to work in order to get it. Okay, so what actually happened on Halloween night of 2001? We know she had friends, but she really didn't go out that often because of how full her schedule was. She did decide to go out this night and hang out with friends, but ultimately going out to the party isn't what led to this being an unsolved case. This isn't one of those examples of don't go to parties or you're going to go missing. Um, it's a little bit different. So let's break it down a little bit. Cindy went out with her friends, Stacy and Lisa, to Players Nightclub, which then changed its name to Indigo and is now known as the Basement Night Spot. So if you've been in Penn State recently or State College recently and you've gone to the Basement Night Spot, that's where we are. So. They hung out there drinking, dancing, having fun, all that fun stuff until about 2 a.m. when club closed down. She was dressed up as a bunny. Her friend Lisa is quoted as having said that she had bunny ears and a tail that she bought. It was a very cute outfit. It wasn't like a sexy outfit. It was just a very cute outfit. That was her thing. She was very cute. She liked to look cute. Okay, so I immediately think of Legally Blonde with, like, the leotard, like, bathing suit thing and the, the little, like, bunny tail or cute, like, Christmas story with, like, the zip-up, like, floppy-eared, like, onesie outfit. <laughs> so it's kind of in between the two of those. So it wasn't a total onesie, but it definitely wasn't an Elle Woods sort of costume. 
Um, there's actually a photo of Cindy in the costume that was taken at the party, and we'll put that up on our Instagram. Um, but she was definitely like a, a cute bunny kind of in between those two images. They're out until about 2 a.m. From there, she goes to another friend's apartment, like I had mentioned at the beginning, to play video games. So around 4 a.m., she and her friend Stacy left. Stacy was driving and Stacy dropped Cindy off at her apartment. All the clues, though there really weren't many, show that Cindy did make it back into the apartment after that party. Did anyone say she was intoxicated? Did she have problems walking when she left? Um, she didn't seem to have problems walking, but she was definitely intoxicated, at least when she was leaving the club. So in the hour and a half, two hours that she was at the apartment, she may have just been drinking water and sobered up a little bit. But according to her friend, they didn't seem to be worried that she was off the wall drunk. I mean, like, I know when my friends are feeling good, and then I also know when my friends have taken it a little bit too far and they need to switch to water. None of her friends seemed to give off the impression that she was too drunk, but it was, I mean, she definitely was drinking at the club and I mean, it was like her one night out. I don't blame her, <laughs> but yeah, there was nothing about whether she was walking funny or how drunk she was or anything like that. But her roommate came home the next morning. The roommate had been visiting family in Philly and roommate came home the next morning. And even though Cindy was gone, her roommate wasn't super worried. Cindy was busy. She had two jobs, this insane major. She was in her senior year. And at least in my experience, the last semester or two semesters of a degree just suck. They're intense, they're rough. And she was in that spring semester of her, or fall semester of her senior year, wrapping up that fall semester before being able to go out on break. It really wasn't a huge concern for her to not be home on a Thursday morning. The one thing the roommate did notice, though, was that Cindy's backpack was in the apartment and that her false eyelashes were off, which totally makes sense. So I'm going to quote Christine Schieffer from And That's Why We Drink Here. Uh, Christine said, as someone who has worn falsies, literally the first thing I take off of my body, I mean, even if I'm wearing a bra and falsies, the falsies go first. Like, I totally feel that sentiment. Brawls are annoying, but I'm ripping those falsies off before anything else. So basically, we have her backpack at home. We find out that her cell phone was in her backpack, but they're both at home. False lashes are off, sitting on the bathroom counter. Her phone was off, and they were able to look at her phone records. There were no calls recorded from her cell phone or the apartment before she apparently left, right? After she got home from the friend's apartment and before she was no longer in the apartment. They did pull the cell phone records and there was nothing that night or even the days leading up to it. Um, they checked her email as well. They didn't see anything suspicious. So we're basically here with she was definitely in the apartment after she got dropped off. But what was not in the apartment, besides Cindy, was her bunny costume. So she didn't change. She still went out wearing the same cute bunny costume. And her purse, keys, license, and cards, cash, anything like that were also not there. We can see that she probably wasn't in the apartment for very long based on that, but that's also speculation. Um, 
there was no sign of forced entry and no other sign of burglary or anything that would account for the missing wallet. Did she have a car? Do we know? Or if she had left, would she be walking? Probably walking unless she was meeting up with someone. Um, I couldn't find definitive sources, but also on, and that's why we drank, Christine did mention when she covered this that she didn't have a car. I couldn't find news sources that specifically said that, but there's at least one piece that says she didn't have a car. Keys, I guess, would have just been to her apartment. And was the door locked? Um, as far as we know, yes. Because when the roommate came back, she didn't mention the door being unlocked. Okay. So we don't know 100%, but it wasn't a red flag to the roommate. So either they always left their room unlocked or it was locked when she got there. Gotcha. So if she did have keys and it was locked, she did probably willingly leave the apartment. Again, we don't know for sure. Investigators did say it seems as if Cindy left her apartment of her own will or at least opened the door of her own will, but she just never returned. So a couple important things to note are that her friends didn't even really consider her to be missing until a few days went by without contact. I did find a couple different sources that mentioned when people started to notice she was missing. So one said that she was supposed to meet up with friends the next night and that she never got in contact with those friends. Another one of the sources that I saw said that um, one of her employee employers was worried when she didn't show up for work that Thursday, but the police didn't get called until Saturday. So Halloween was Wednesday. Thursday is when the roommate comes home. Thursday night is when she's supposed to go out with these friends. Thursday is when she doesn't show up for the work shift, but nobody actually called police until Saturday. So it's, it's a little bit of a, did she normally just go off on her own for a couple days? I mean, it was the early aughts, so we weren't all addicted to iPhones like we are today, but it's, it's kind of hard to say anything. Her roommate was out of town that night, the night of Halloween that is, so she didn't witness anything. She couldn't really provide any more details other than the fact that she came home that day and Cindy was gone. So when they did find out that she was missing, her parents came over to the States and they did what all parents do, clean for their kids. Um, this did potentially destroy any evidence that could have been collected from the apartment. So police don't necessarily think there was too much evidence to collect but the parents showing up and cleaning kind of destroyed anything that may have been there. So did her aunt and uncle from Virginia show up as well? Like, did they have any role in the ongoing investigation? Like, did they advocate for her or have anything to do with it? That's a good question. I don't know. So when I was looking at how the searches went and kind of who was in charge and who was involved, I couldn't really find anything about her aunt and uncle. The only information I could find about them is just that she lived with them through high school. Um, now, I do know that in South Korean culture, South Korean families tend to have what's considered a collective face, meaning that what one family member does represents the actions of all. So 
it's possible that even though the aunt and uncle weren't involved, because the mom and dad were, that was kind of the family representation, at least physically. But obviously, I'm not South Korean. I don't know 100%. That's just coming from classes that I've had through my degrees. So the parents might have forefronted the advocacy, or aunt and uncle may have been there and it just wasn't reported on much. Um, when I dig into the theories in just a little bit, there is a theory that relates to and ends up with kind of turning the family away. So there's really not a whole, whole lot that we know about the family themselves. Mm, okay. They did search wooded areas near the campus. Nothing was ever found. If you've ever been to Penn State, you know there's woods like everywhere because it's in smack dab middle of Pennsylvania mountains. And that's kind of what we have in this state. So they did search the wooded areas and found nothing. So we're going to get into some theories here. There are a few theories. Some have been dismissed. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with the dismissal of all of them. And then there are some that are kind of wild because I went down the Reddit rabbit hole. So let's go through some of the actual investigation theories first, and then we'll go into some other ones. The first theory here is that she was experiencing some sort of mental illness, either anxiety from overworking herself at school and with jobs, or depression over a recent breakup. Now, she did have a breakup within the past month before she went missing. Some friends say she took it not very well. Other friends say she was fine. She was ready to move on with life. This does get thrown out pretty quickly as a theory because it didn't line up with what everybody had seen and heard from her recently. So, like I said, she was upset by the breakup, but really was doing well with adjusting to this change in life. She was excited for graduation. She was really proud of her work. There's a quote from the Post-Gazette News that said her goal was to be, quote, a famous, popular, rich, talented graphic and fashion designer. Obviously, what you put, and that was on her, like, student webpage, what you put out for everybody to see is not always what's going on inside, but she wasn't at risk of not graduating. Other than the breakup, there was really nothing negative going on in her life, no big fights with people, nothing happening within her family, nothing like that. Now, on the flip side, she was in therapy and she was medicated, but also same. And it doesn't make me want to just up and run away from my life, but meds and dosages and therapy and where you are in that whole process is totally different for every person. We also don't know exactly what meds. We don't know how regularly she was taking them or how they reacted with alcohol because she was drinking that night. So there are a lot of questions that can come into play with this theory. So it's odd to me that this theory was thrown out so quickly because I did hear something that the parents are, the family in general, said that they were afraid she may have committed suicide, but then her friends said they didn't think there was any way that's what happened to her. But, I mean, I feel like your family saying that is kind of an important clue. Yeah, and you're right. Um, the family did suggest it, and there's some more evidence if you look further into her website. Like I mentioned earlier on her, her student website, 
She did post, I mean, it was just listed as a text post, but to me it reads kind of like a poem. Maybe that's because I'm teaching poetry this month. But she did write, uh, sad but happy, crying but laughing, ugly but pretty, hungry but full, hurt but fine, weak but strong. I pretend, and this is me. So there's definitely some conflicting feelings in that post. But the one thing I do notice is that each line starts with this more negative piece and ends on a positive piece, which could kind of mean two things. One is, is she looking at the negatives and making them a positive? Or is she trying to cover up the negatives by acting as if it's a positive when really the the negative piece is kind of what's taking her over, especially by the last line, I pretend and this is me. So I think there are pieces that just nobody knows because nobody other than Cindy was in her own mind and nobody knew exactly how she felt. Of course. But I definitely, that's one of those where investigators dismissed it pretty quickly, but I feel like maybe it shouldn't have been dismissed so quickly. It may have at least been a factor, but there are... Even if she didn't necessarily commit suicide, it could still be. Mental illness could still be a factor. Absolutely. And and if she did commit suicide, where where's her body? Where would she be? And that's a good point, too. I mean, she's never been found. And if it was, I mean, you're in state college on a holiday. I mean, there's going to be people around. And the odds of, I feel like, not being discovered are just really slim. Unless it's super well thought out, which if you're in that kind of manic state, you're not necessarily going to be thinking out every detail so that your body's never found. Ultimately, we don't know for sure. Now, in a non-academic light, beyond looking forward to graduation and everything, there were two fairly expensive kind of, I hate the word things, but things that she was looking forward to coming up. Um, She did have tickets to a Britney Spears concert that was, I think, two days after she went missing. I think it was that Friday. And it was at Bryce Jordan Center, which is right on campus. And she was also expecting a computer to be delivered that she had recently purchased. I mean, mental illnesses can present in different ways. But I feel like if I'm preparing to run away, I'm not going to spend money on Britney Spears tickets. I'm not going to spend money on a computer that I'm not even going to be home to get. But I'm also not her. There are people out there that say she may have purchased those things as a cover-up for her running away so that no one would suspect it. The theories just kind of start to loop and spiral and get intertwined with each other. But the next big theory that comes up kind of breaks into a few different theories. The other theory is abduction. So the general thought that seems to be out there is that she left her apartment willingly to run to some local 24-hour market or something that was just around the corner. And there was a market right down on the corner, maybe half a block from her apartment. So there was I mean, it was super close there. She did go to these markets fairly often, especially if she was up late, which she typically was because of her studies and two jobs. So the thought here is that she was abducted on her way to the market and then something else happened from there. The assumption is that she was on the way to the market and not on her way home 
because when investigators looked at her credit card transactions, there was nothing beyond the club that she was at that night. Did she have cash? Maybe. But nobody recalls seeing her, so it kind of breaks at this point, and we have to look into who are these possible abductors. Is there any possibility that there was security footage from either another establishment or dorm rooms, anything like that? So she was in off-campus housing, so there was no, like she was in, it was all students in the apartment, but it was off campus, so it wasn't monitored by campus security. The only security footage that investigators thought they might be able to find was from a giant. When they went to try to get the security footage, it had already been taped over. Security cameras only keep footage for 24 or 48 hours, whatever the time might be, and then it just starts taping over. So by the time they got a clue that she may have been at this giant, uh, they couldn't check out any of the security footage. So they tried, but to no avail. Something that breaks off of the abductor theory is that it was an unknown abductor. Sounds kind of obvious, but it's possible and there are some other abduction theories. So it's possible that she was just up and abducted by someone that was taking advantage of the moment, right? A semi-drunk, potentially, college student wandering down the street and somebody for whatever reason that we won't speculate just snatches her up and it's possible we don't know who this person could be there's no leads and nobody knows if this is the case whether she was abducted and killed kept alive for a certain time or if she is still alive. She'd be 41 this year, so it's not impossible that she could be alive. I mean, Halloween night in State College, I can't imagine that somebody wouldn't hear her or see something happen. I mean, the screams, I guess you could pass off as people messing around on Halloween, but how would you not notice? And that's a good point too. I mean, her apartment building was right off of College Ave, which is like the main, or College Street, I forget what it is, but. It's right off that main drag that separates town from campus that like runs right in front of Old Main and people would be there. I mean, the point that you make, I completely understand. It, it seems weird that it could just be some random abduction, but who knows if she made it super far out of the center of town and someone took advantage of that. The other abduction theory gets a little bit complicated. There's a thought that she was specifically abducted by a man named Hugo Selensky, and he's a convicted robber and killer, and he's also suspected to be a serial killer. Like I said, he is a convicted killer, so he definitely did kill. There's at least two people he definitely killed, and the thought is that there are probably a lot more that he was responsible for. This theory comes from a friend of Hugo's named Paul Weekly. Hugo is thought to have had an accomplice named Michael Kurkowski. Michael admitted to abducting a woman with Hugo in State College and then killing her. Investigators can't go back to Michael for more information because, wait for it, his dead body was found buried on Hugo's land during a dig that was done in 2003. Hugo then eventually admitted to kidnapping Cindy but he said that Michael is the one that killed her, and then he kept her bunny ears as a souvenir. 
And that's supposedly the reason that Hugo then killed Michael because of the souvenir or trophy of those bunny ears. It should also be mentioned that Hugo knew that Michael had $60,000 hidden in his house. So it seems a little bit more likely that he was killing a man for $60 million instead of bunny ears. But I'm not here to judge. Sorry, who keeps $60 million in their home? <laughs> I mean, isn't that just a thing you keep? Like, like under, under your mattress? mattress? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, it, it definitely seems like there was more motivation for the cash. But his story was that Michael kept these bunny ears. And so he was like, hey, I'm going to kill you. Oh, and I'm going to kill your girlfriend. Investigators dug up Hugo's property And at first they found five bodies that were all burned. Two of them were identified as Michael and his girlfriend. Like I said earlier, uh, her name was Tammy Fassett. But as they kept digging, they found seven more bodies. So there's a total of 12 bodies buried on this dude's land. Not sketch at all. Hugo was tried and convicted for the murder of Michael and Tammy. And then two more of the people that were found on his property were drug dealers And Hugo was also tried and convicted for their murders, but then in an appeal, he was acquitted of their murders. So at this point, he only has the two convictions. But turning back into Cindy's case now, Hugo even eventually admitted to playing a part in this, saying that he and Michael were driving in State College when they saw Cindy walking and thought she was a prostitute, even though she was in the cute bunny costume, but okay. So he took part in the kidnapping, But then, again, says Michael is the one who ultimately killed her. PenLive, which is a pretty big news source in Pennsylvania, has said that this is really the only remaining investigative theory, as in something that investigators still kind of want to cling to. To kind of break a little bit farther off of this, because it's not complicated enough already, there's also a thought that Paul Weekly, who was that original informant, was actually guilty of the crime, either kidnapping or killing, because he had many articles saved on his computer related to Cindy's case. It's thought by some that maybe he knew how to blame Hugo and Michael for the crime because Paul was the one that actually did it and could put the blame on someone by giving details. It's also theorized that maybe he learned all the details just to get a lesser sentence for his own crime that he was already imprisoned for, by throwing Hugo and Michael under the bus for the alleged kidnapping and subsequent murder of Cindy. Paul was the informant for the other bodies that were found on Hugo's land, and because those all checked out, the investigators didn't see a reason to distrust his word. And he even admitted to helping Hugo kill Michael and Tammy for that $60,000 payout. So that was a lot. Let me try to summarize it just a little bit for you. So there's man A, who is Hugo, and he's got dead bodies in his yard. 12 dead bodies in his yard. Normal things. One of these bodies is man B, who is Michael, as well as Michael's girlfriend. Man C, Paul, then says that man A admitted to the kidnapping and murder of Cindy. Man A does admit to the kidnapping, but then says man B committed it. Man B allegedly admitted to both, but we can't get a current statement from him because he's dead. So Man C splits off into a sub-theory of this sub-theory. 
It is possible that Man C kidnapped and murdered Cindy, tried to place the blame elsewhere to avoid another conviction, because that's right, Man C helped Man A kill Man B. Or he just looked up a bunch of information and tried to convince investigators that Man A was involved so that he himself, Man C, would get a reduced sentence. So even the summary is insanely confusing because there's so many moving parts. However, the moving parts seem to connect. It's plausible. It'd be kind of hard to make something up that's that elaborate that could make sense. But it's also possible they were all just lying to look cool because that's what a lot of criminals do. Look at a lot of different serial killer cases and you see admission to crimes that either never happened or that were proven to not have been their doing. So that's also a possibility. Also an important side note, apparently Hugo is known to have buried bodies in multiple locations and then moved them to his house. Is there that possibility that Cindy is just buried at a different location? Maybe, but it's speculation. Now, there is something that throws me off just a little bit here. There was a witness who called in a tip saying she saw a man forcing a woman into a vehicle in Chinatown in Philly, and the woman matched Cindy's description. This witness gave a verbal description of the man, and a sketch was made. The sketch is posted on our Instagram. It doesn't match Hugo based on the pictures I saw. It very well may match someone else, but since Hugo's really the only name of a potential suspect or person of interest that we have, in comparing it to his face, the sketch and Hugo don't seem to match up, but there's also a picture of Hugo going up on our Instagram. It's also important to note that as time went on, police began to discredit this witness because her story kept changing. So it throws a momentary clue into things, but eventually was thrown out because they didn't know if they could truly trust her word. So then investigators also looked into a theory where drugs might have been involved. Cindy had journaled about ecstasy and marijuana use, but there's absolutely no evidence to support that she was on any drugs that night. Her friends said that minor drug use was just a part of the college experience, and that's basically what police chalked it up to as well. So eventually, the drug theory was discarded. So even if she wasn't on any drugs that night, she could have been meeting someone to pick up drugs. I mean, she had so many things going on. She could have been on uppers. Or now that I think about it, even just getting some pot to chill out. And that's, I mean, definitely a valid point. I think the drug theory was dismissed a little bit too quickly. Now, the Post-Gazette also reported that Cindy's website described fun as being, quote, anything except hardcore drugs, end quote. So she might have been stressed. She was up late, out partying. She lost a lot of study time. She had to work the next day. Maybe she was looking for uppers so she could stay awake, get work done before going into work, or... I mean, valid point. Maybe she was looking for some weed to chill out. Yeah, I don't I think it's think, very possible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't think it should have been discarded. But, you know, I'm sitting in my attic reporting on things I found online. I'm not an investigator. So it's also quite possible that they knew more than is allowed to be told through the media. Yeah, that's always true. That's always something we should keep in mind. 
Now, this kind of comes back to what I mentioned earlier with her family ending up not being super involved in the official investigation. Kind of the sadder side of the theories is that police just didn't care because she wasn't quote unquote Caucasian, except by the actual definition of a Caucasian, she's more Caucasian than most Americans. Not the point. Basically, she's not a white American. And this theory goes off of the fact that because she was an international student, her case just didn't get the attention it deserved. It's a horrible thought. It's not something that we want to ever give credit to, but it's not a bad theory. Her family does point out in a press conference that there was a 13-year-old white girl who went missing in January of that year, so January of 01. There were 16 investigators on the case, but when Cindy went missing, there was only one investigator on the case until two different diversity groups from campus got involved. Then she got five more. So she had six, which is still 10 less than the case in January had. Now, some of that is coming from the fact that it was a minor, a teenager versus Cindy, who was 21, or a minor versus an adult might have made the difference there. But still, it just kind of seems a little sketchy. The best evidence for this is that her parents had this press conference and then the police just stopped talking to him. The lead investigator admitted that they basically cut off the family. They say they did this to best benefit Cindy's case, but it's it's not good looks. I do want to clarify that police continued investigating the case. The family just wasn't as involved. So that kind of goes back to, were her aunt and uncle involved? We don't really know that much because it didn't take very long for the police to just kind of shut the family out. I think you find it way too often that if someone is not from this country and they go missing or murdered, if they can't pronounce their name or if the family isn't every day knocking on the door calling, that it's just going to go to the wayside, which is just totally unfair in so many ways. And a part of me kind of even wonders, would this have even made it to Unsolved Mysteries or podcasts or whatever? If she went by Hyung Jung, which was her birth name, instead of Cindy? What if she went to a podunk college instead of Penn State? I exactly. mean, you've, you've got an Americanized name and you're going to this huge college, huge university in Pennsylvania. And if you were at a smaller school going by your birth name, would this even have made it where it made it? And that's a sad question that you have to ask or even think about. That's kind of where we're at with this case. Those are really all we know, all of those theories that come from investigators. That's really what we've got as far as the official thoughts. Now, like I said earlier, I went down the Reddit rabbit hole, which there were a bunch of different ideas in there, but there are two specific ones that I wanted to, two specific theories that I kind of wanted to dive into. So... One suggestion suggestion from Reddit is that maybe she was crossing the road, crossing at a intersection, something, and got hit, and then she was disposed of in some way, shape, or form. I don't know how credible this could be. Uh, she was partying, and I mean, who knows what was going on at the friend's apartment. None of the friends ever admitted anything, but if I'm talking to cops... I'm probably not going to throw out, hey, I was using recreational drugs, but I've also never been in that situation to have to say anything like that to cops. So we know she wasn't into anything too crazy, but she did write those pieces in her journal about 
and on her website about drugs. So who knows exactly what level of intoxication she was at that night and on what. Maybe she was stumbling a bit. Maybe someone else was out partying for the holiday and then decided to drive and something happened. Like I said earlier, she wasn't too far away from campus itself. Uh, she was living in off-campus housing, but I mean, if she was on a high enough floor in her apartment, she could see campus. It's a pretty major road that runs between campus and town. If she was along this road and she stumbled, slipped, fell, was crossing at a crosswalk and somebody turned, maybe. I'm not totally convinced because I feel like Again, you know, like Amanda said earlier, there's going to be a lot of people out on Halloween. And especially 4 a.m., you're going to have some people that are maybe just stumbling home, but you're going to have some people that are getting up and going to get ready to work at places that open at like 6 a.m. or anything like that, diners and coffee shops and all that kind of stuff. It's a busy area. It's a huge school. They were just off campus. It was a big party night. I don't know how much I can really buy into that Reddit theory. Now, I did also find a Reddit poster mentioning forensic astrology. And from what I can understand, because the entire solar system is constantly in motion, certain elements of where things are in the solar system can help forensic investigators kind of sort out some events that have happened. I'll link out to the whole breakdown, but basically, according to this forensic astrologist, it's thought that she was killed by another student, assumed to be another Penn State student, not confirmed, but definitely a student, who was also out partying. He or she, it does seem to lean more towards a male, and through the rest of this explanation, I'll just be using he. Not conclusive on gender, though found Cindy as she was walking to this store with the original theory, killed her, and then disposed of her body off campus. Now, a lot of this is coming from forensicastrology.blogspot.com, which, like I said, I'm going to link out to that in our description. The forensic astrologist says this, uh, searchers should tackle any high land areas or areas near airports, helioports, radio towers, cell phone towers, lumber mills, mountain quarries, or any place where two roads meet on a hillside or a tall commercial building with outside elevators or lifts. That's a lot. And I feel like that describes 90% of Pennsylvania, mainly at mountains, towers, and where two roads meet on a hillside. She does go on to then say, are there agricultural or industrial plants in the mountain areas which have tall pump machinery that goes up and down? A place with stairways that go up to high areas of the plant? These are the sort of places that should be searched. Now, I don't know how far Penn State was in their agricultural studies in 2001, but I know they've always been a big ag school. Um, but they have an entire college of the university that is dedicated to agriculture. I'm always a skeptic, so I'm going to point out that, yeah, there's going to be agricultural plants when you've got a university that has an entire college dedicated to agriculture. Then the blog spot goes on and the forensic astrologist continues to say, quickly in closing, let me try to describe her killer. This man is described by Mars in Aquarius. 
I don't know what that means, but it has to do with the astrology part. This means he is probably tall. He is muscular and obviously strong, attractive, well-shaped features. He is probably Anglo-Saxon. He has blondish hair and very light blue or flinty gray eyes. He may have been good in science and might have had a science major or was a science teacher. He can also be blunt and rude, and although people are attracted to him, he does not treat them well. He is very reckless and likes danger. He has a coarse and vulgar side, one which served him well in the commission of this thrill kill. And although his friends are fiercely loyal to him and will not tell on him in this case, he is not dependable or kind and does not deserve the break he's had. So basically, they're saying that it's an attractive guy that's got friends that are going to stay quiet for him and this was a murder that happened for the fun of it. Um, it's an interesting breakdown. I had to read it through a couple times to try to understand it and I still don't really fully understand it. The site does state that this is an experimental form of forensics. It's not to be used as conclusive evidence, but I just thought it was interesting and I wanted to throw that out there. That's so, like the most broad description of anyone I've ever heard. Well, I'm if, just going to put that out there. If you look at the photos of Hugo, though, he is tall, lean, muscular, and has the grayish colored eyes. That's fair. He does have those really light blue, gray eyes. A coarse and vulgar side. So, I mean, the reason that there were two drug dealers that he killed was because he was trying to get drugs and the deal went wrong. Now, those are also the crimes he was acquitted of, so we'll leave that on, on speculation and accusatory. Nothing confirmed, but that's kind of coarse and vulgar. Well, and his friends, his friends told on him, so... We can't go off of that either. But it does accurately describe what he looks like back then. And, I mean, Kurkowski could have even been that fiercely loyal friend because Kurkowski never told on... Michael never, you know, told on him because then he killed him. So he couldn't tell. As a listener, what can you do? If any of this sounds familiar to you, if it prompts any memories that you might have, you can contact Jonathan Mayer, detective with the Ferguson Township Police Department with information. He can be contacted at 814-237-1172. You can also send tips directly to us at KCC through our social media or our email, or you can reach out to Center County Crime Stoppers at 1-877-99-CRIME which breaks down to 1-877-992-7463, or PA Crime Stoppers at 1-800-4PA-TIPS, which is 1-800-472-8477. Physical details to know are that at the time of her last sighting, she had medium-length black hair, brown eyes. She was approximately five foot tall and between 110 and 115 pounds. Has she, there been put out a progress picture of what she might look like now to maybe help with that? Not that I could find. That's a good thought, though. If if anyone knows anyone who does age progression photos, hit us up. But not from what I could find. Basically, looking her up, I can only find her photo that was on the missing posters. No okay. age progression. 
Now, at the time she went missing, she did have her ears pierced, three or four piercings along the outer edge of each ear, as well as the cartilage between the ear canal opening and the temple. So I'm reading that as a daith piercing or a trigus. She also had a pierced belly button. It's also possible in 20 years, any of those could have grown shut. She does have one tattoo of an elongated Pisces sign on her back below the waistline centered, and it was brown. That's obviously not gonna fade like ear piercings could close up, so that would be a pretty distinct uh, marker. The tattoo was about four inches wide and two inches tall. Everything that I just gave as part of the description information is coming directly from NamUs, and you can find all of that information on their website as well. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast, and we're excited to come back at you with another episode next week. That's all we have for this episode. To keep up with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at kccpod or email us at keystonecoldcases at gmail.com. This episode was researched and hosted by Sarah. Theme music by Darren Makins. Production assistance from A to B Media. Join us again next week for a new case to sleuth out. <laughs>